Canada established diplomatic relations with South Africa in 1939. Canada and South Africa maintain a deep and broad relationship based on shared values of democracy, security, and prosperity. Canada's anti-apartheid efforts within the Commonwealth in the 1980s and our support towards uh, the establishment of multi-ethnic, multi-racial and democratic society in South Africa strengthened the ties between the two countries. Canadian and South African experts worked closely together in drafting South Africa's first democratic constitution. To talk more on relations between the two partners, today I am joined by High Commissioner Sheikh, who is the South African High Commissioner to Canada. Good morning. Welcome to Ubuntu Radio. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me greet you from a warm summer in uh, Canada. You know, we... <laughs> Canada is known for its notorious winters. And Ottawa is the, the second coldest capital in the world. Wow. <laughs> the average, the average uh, uh, temperature here in winter is about minus 35. I wouldn't survive. <laughs> Alpha, let me tell you, minus 35 is just numbers. When you feel minus 35, you know what cold is. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt I would survive in such conditions. Look, I'm from the north side of South Africa. It's extremely hot in Guiana. So minus 35. But you know what they say? They is, the winters are not cold. Mm. It is poorly dressed people so when you go outside you have to have all the goodies the only problem is it takes so long to put on all the warm clothes and it takes so long to take out all the warm clothes uh, and and you fill up the laundry basket in one one dressing one dressing you fill it up <laughs> exactly. Exactly. okay hi commissioner let us lay the ground to our discussion by you giving us a detailed background on the state of bilateral relations between South Africa and Canada. Okay. So there's a bit of history here, Thelma. The, you would recall that during the apartheid days, uh, South Africa has always had a, a presence in Canada. So we had the the High Commission here that goes way back to the early 1950s. Uh, and when South Africa was still part of the Commonwealth, <clears throat> it had Commonwealth representation and apartheid South Africa maintained its presence in Canada. However, as the global anti-apartheid movement started to happen, uh, significant sectors within the Canadian uh, society started to support the anti-apartheid movement. They didn't give overt support to the African National Congress, the, the ruling party in South Africa, but generally there was a lot of people-to-people -people support to the ANC, to the broad anti-democratic movement, the trade unions, etc. So there's been a lot of that coming from Canada to assist us in our transition. Mm. But more importantly, the, the, during the negotiation process and in the preparation for democratic forces to be able to negotiate and to move into the transition to government, Canada's uh, IDRC, which is the International Development Research uh, Center, which is a developmental agency, gave lots of assistance to the African National Congress and others uh, in preparing ourselves for negotiations. Mm. So it'll be strange, but it's not strange. It is it's a testimony to the relationship that much of our constitution our very constitution has been modeled in part by the Canadian model. So Canada was always seen to us as a possible model of a democracy that we would want to follow. 
And they and the Canadians through IDRC was very assisting to us in respect of helping the research, helping us understand this model. And much of that was brought into the negotiation process and forms much of the basic structure that we have in, in, in our constitution and in our makeup of government itself. So, so that is the two big pillars around which uh, our relationship was born. And since then, the, and you know, it is almost like a kind of family relationship. Mm. It was very close in that kind of period, very assisting, very understanding of where we want to go. But like all family relationships, they don't deteriorate, but they get forgotten about. Mm. So we went through a, a, a period, and that is the, the recent period, I would say, for the past perhaps decade, where the family relationship between Canada and South Africa were taken for granted. So we are now in the process of resetting that relationship. Uh, we have had a very successful annual consultation between Global Affairs Canada and ourselves. Our Director General, uh, Mr. Zane Dango, was here with his team. We engaged in this at a very high level and very on very substantial matters, uh, which has now laid the basis for the reset. And the reset is at different levels. At the first level, it is on the multilateral issues on the world. Uh, at the second level, it is on the bilateral issues. So on the multilateral issues, of course, Canada has a different position to us in respect of uh, the Ukraine-Russian conflict. They, they see Russia as an aggressor and they see the events of uh, that whole conflict starting in February 2022, where we differ from them in a sense that we see the history of the conflict in Ukraine starting much longer. And we recognize that one of the factors that is producing fragility in that area is the unmet security concerns of Russia. So that is where we, we differ. And we secondly, we differ at the level that we don't think that contributing to the intensification of that conflict will necessarily resolve the conflict. Uh, we think that the matter must be resolved by the United Nations and the African Six uh, Initiative is a contribution towards resolving that conflict at a multilateral level. But Canada is starting to listen to our views on it I, I do sense that there is a slight movement towards appreciating that the conflict must be resolved at the level of uh, uh, a, a negotiated settlement. And I think we will see uh, some meaningful shifts as we go down the line in, in, in that regard. So yes, we're different. We understand each other's uh, different positions. They have not been uh, they, they have sought to engage us to understand our position, and we have been engaging them to, to outline our position. And I must say, our Director General, together with our business unit, etc., has been very much on top of this issue so that we carry Canada along in understanding our position. And hence, you'll see that Canada is not officially expressed a critical view towards South Africa, as other countries have, uh, you know, in our neighborhood, in south of Canada is a, is another country, a very huge country uh, called the United States of America. Uh, and, and I think the US has often expressed officially their unhappiness with our stance, as we call it, non-aligned. And, and in there, I don't want to be unkind to the US, they have expressed their views, but Canada has not expressed a critical view on our stance so far. And by and large, that is 
the success of our diplomatic efforts to keep Canada engaged for them to understand our position. On the bilateral level, Thelma, the, as I said, we are resetting it and we're resetting it in, in regards to the following things. Over the past maybe 10, 15, perhaps even 20 years, we have been engaging with Canada in basically what we call pilot projects. Can we cooperate on this, a little pilot project here, a little pilot project there? Now we've reached the point where we can move pilot to scale. And there are two or three areas where we're moving it to scale. The first area is in the realm of education. So I can tell you that one of my busiest <coughs> uh, events here is just keeping in touch with the various universities in Canada who has their contact with our universities in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So in, in May, early May of this year or late April, we had 20 universities from South Africa come to Canada at a very senior level. And they have met with the University Management of Canada. And arising out of that has been the, the creation or the need to establish what is called the Canadian University Network. Now, what is happening in the world, and I think we, we are on top of it, is that the universities with the exchange of information, with the exchange of research, is fundamentally laying the basis to keep the world together, at least at the level of university students, university research, university exchange, because universities are one of the sites for the production of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the more relevant the knowledge is today, uh, the, the better it is for how we manage the crises in the world. So I'm very, very happy about the university to university level exchange. And the second is the research and science councils. So, you know, we have the, the, the agricultural research council, we have the medical research council, we have the, uh, the National uh, Research Fund, the NRF, and a whole range of research councils established in South Africa. Well, they too came and engaged with their research, counter research council counterparts here. And that was another fantastic meeting. So at the level even of the research councils, they are tremendous amount of exchanges, agreement on how to look at some relevant research, uh, and we have been quite strong in pushing that we need to understand a couple of things from Canada. How do they manage inequality? How do they manage employment? How do they manage uh, ensuring that poverty levels do not increase? All of the challenges that we face in South Africa. And the research councils are busy engaging in that in relation to food security, uh, the Agricultural Council unit with their counterparts here are engaging. So that's the second area in which we have had tremendous amount of uh, success in. So the third area in which we are seeing levels of success, uh, Canada has identified what we call global innovation clusters. And these global innovation clusters bring together the best in regard to scientific knowledge, they bring together capital, they bring together private sector players to see how in any particular uh, global innovation center that they could achieve economic growth. So for example, in they have what's called the oceans, global innovation clusters where all the players in regard to the oceans economy is brought together where they think tank some of the issues, they workshop some of the issues, they look at the opportunities that can produce economic growth, and they fund it in terms of capital funding, etc. Now, I went to one of those clusters, and it's called the proteins industry clusters. 
And the fantastic thing about that, it is in Saskatchewan, which is on the prairies, a very different climate to, to Ottawa. And there is massive production of food in regard to basic crops like canola, wheat, soya bean, peas, etc. But again, they're producing, and the novel way in which they're doing it, they combine science, they combine farming, they combine uh, uh, capital to produce global players in the food value chain. I think we can learn a hell of a lot from these uh, clusters. So our, one of the key objectives of our mission is to visit each of these clusters to see what they're doing, engage with them to understand it and to provide the linkages back home to our people so that we could take advantage of this clusters approach. Now, we did something like this in South Africa. Uh, we would call it our Pachisas, uh, and we have had the Oceans Economy Pachisa. We mm. would look at the farming. So yes, so our task is to bring the linkage between the two. So that is, that really is the key things that we drive here. Of course, in addition to tourism, in addition to wine promotion, which I'll come to our trade objectives. So we have studied the trade figures together with DTIC to look at what is the level of trade between Canada and South Africa and how can we improve it in respect to where we have a con competitive advantage. So when we look at that, we analyze it, we see that one of the biggest markets that we have here is for citrus. So all our citrus farming products are produced uh, or are brought into Canada through Cape Span. Uh, we have the, the wine products coming in here. Uh, Wines of South Africa has a, a person who drives it and works very close with us to promote our wine uh, in uh, Canada. And like that, we look at other products. So our precious metals, and I know the commodities tend to to go in cycles. So, but Canada is a huge importer for our, our metals. And we go through each of the products to see how we can expand the entry of those products in the Canadian market. So we start from where we are good and what can we do to make it better. Mm. So that is the trade trade issues. And, and of course, lastly, what I've got to tell you is the Canadians are a saving nation. Uh, some people say a little too much saving, uh, <laughs> which goes a little bit on the stingy side, but the savings of the pension funds have allowed Canada to be the largest pension funds in the world. So the Canadian pension funds have in its asset management, it has about $1.8 trillion under management. Now, trillion, you know, often we, we, we don't understand, we, we can't comprehend the numbers when I talk about millions, billions, and trillions. So uh, the best way to know this is the following. Uh, a million seconds in your life, Thelma, was 12 days ago. A billion seconds in your life is 33 years from now. Mm -hmm. mm. And a trillion seconds in your life is through 350 years from now, right? So when we talk about millions, billions, and trillions, this is why most of us, most of us would be able to accrue asset value that is about a million in, in your life, right? Very few of us will be able to come to asset value of billions. But when you're talking about trillions, it is enormous amount of money. Mm -hmm. And our objective is to attract those pension funds to make an investment in South Africa, and in particular, to make an investment in our infrastructure rollout program, and to make an investment in our renewable energy sector or in our energy transition. So we are pursuing that. We have a plan to do that. 
we engage very much the infrastructure office of uh, located in the presidency mm. we engaging derco on the matter we are engaging a consultant uh, by the name of dr miriam altman uh, we are engaging the canada business forum and we have designed a roadmap with a plan basically is next year under the leadership of our consul general in in toronto and i'll make a point about that in a moment but under her leadership under the leadership of uh, consul general fadane we plan to host a conference in which we bring together the infrastructure players from south africa and we bring together the pension funds to see whether they would be able to pursue a a mutually benefiting relationship mm. and the object bring that that pension funds or portion of that pension funds to south africa it takes a lot of work but there i am relying on my experience in the development bank of southern africa the dbsa uh somehow i am okay with the way of finance it makes it easier to have these discussions with financial people uh i know what they look at in terms of the risk profiles whether they would invest or not but we are in the phase of building the relationship and building what essentially is called the enabling environment before investors put their money into any particular project now that in synopsis is what i do here uh and i'm kept very busy with very little staff but an excellent working team uh so i have not much to complain of so i'm going to keep quiet <laughs> so in your view what are some of the advantages for south african companies that plan on investing in canada and canadian companies that plan on investing in south africa well two things firstly an investment in canada by south african companies allow them to access the north american market mm. so let me give you a few statistics 80% of canada's trade is with the united states of america 80% so canada trades from the north down south with the with the 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 american market 80% of all canadians live in a 200 kilometer radius from the united states mm. 80% of this large country live in a 200 kilometer border with the united states of america wow. now there are reasons for that mm. and the reasons is that the canadians want to access the north america the the us market as you know is huge so in regard to many things timber auto the the vehicles automotive industries all of that because canada's population is 10% of the united states of america right so it's only 10% of the united states it's a big massive country that is not very populated and this is why canada has taken a particular approach to immigration which i will discuss with you in a minute but so the the south african companies coming to canada must not only see the canadian market they must see the north american market now there is one company who is doing remarkably well in canada a south african company and you are not going to believe it when i tell you who they are oh it's nandos nandos, nandos. wow nandos <laughs> right has come hmm. here they have such a creative team such a very interesting they've combined the north american market mm. they are both in canada and the us and they keep using this advantage of the canada us border advantage to keep expanding their their footprint so mm. we engage with nandos uh, hell of a lot and uh, and in fact you know just this is an aside so as a result of climate change there's a tremendous amount of wildfires in in canada now 
who is the country that sent the most amount of firefighters to Canada? Well, South Africa, mm. right? As a result of the bilateral arrangements we have, one of those bilateral arrangements was an agreement between Canadian uh, Environmental Agency, our department as managed by an entity called Working on Fire. Now, here's the beautiful thing. We have sent to date 615 firefighters to Canada. Mm. And when our firefighters come here, they come singing, they come dancing, they come, and this has captured the imagination of the Canadians, right? And Canadians just have fallen in love with our working on fire people. And I want to give compliment to Trevor Abrams and the working on fire team. They are such a dynamic group of people. And the, the model that is so interesting, and I want us to understand this. You remember we have that uh, works program uh, where we train unemployed people and government funds that uh, works program. Well, Trevor and working on fire team take unemployed youth, train them to be firefighters, and then deploy them in countries like Canada where they get paid in foreign currencies. And this is an enormous amount of, of benefits to our firefighters. When they come back, they're allowed to rebuild their lives develop themselves, etc. So it is a absolute perfect win-win uh, for everybody. And I just hope that South Africa is aware of this significant breakthrough that we have made in respect of working on working with, on fire people, uh, giving them the kind of diplomatic support they need, that arose from a bilateral arrangement between governments. Uh, and this is a success story of note. And let me just say that because we are going to be living in a world which is increasingly at risk because of climate change, this entity working on fire is going to be increasingly deployed all over the world dealing with the challenges of wildfires. So that is there. So, so I think South African companies coming to, to, to Canada will take advantage of creating a footprint, accessing the US market. Well, the reverse is also the same. Because of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement and now the area established under that agreement, and because of the progress that is made in the Continental Free Trade Area, and the agreement, the access to the African market is going to significantly increase for Canadian players. So Canadian companies coming to South Africa are not only accessing the, the South African market, they're accessing this market that goes to more than, more than 350 million people. And that's a huge market. So Canadian companies are starting to rethink this. Uh, we have engagement with the Africa-Canada Chamber of Commerce, a very interesting ex-South African, a guy by the name of Garrett Bloor. He hosts at least twice a year Africa-Canada uh, business forum meetings, bringing people together. And there is a revival of interest of Africa in Canada. The government of Canada is, is looking at uh, developing a new framework in regard to how they want to engage with, with uh, Africa. They are moving away from, from a view that says Africa is only in need of development. Uh, yes, Africa is in need of development, but Africa is also a place where you can innovate, where you can train, where you can maximize your benefits. And I think there's a, a reset in the thinking of Canadians about Africa. And that augurs all very well for the African continent and for us in particular. Mm -hmm. So when it, it comes to um, trade relations, I also note that Canada 
2021, Canada provided about 21.5 million US dollars in international assistance to South Africa, with approximately 5 million of this amount channeled to bilateral assistance programming focusing on inclusive governance as well as gender equality and empowerment of women and girls. Please tell us more about this. So much of this development assistance that is uh, given by Canada to South Africa comes via what is called the IDRC, the International Development Research Council, mm. that helped us in uh, that provided assistance to us in our negotiations way back in 1990s. So the vehicle for Canada's assistance is the IDRC in addition to other programs. So what Canada, and this is Canada's approach, where they are very committed to institution building, building systems of governance, ensuring that, that institutions become resilient, etc. And you'll notice that all of that funding has gone to that uh, area of work. And in particular, they, they gave great assistance to, to the, I think it was our national treasury in order to build essentially the monitoring and evaluation capabilities to be able to monitor and evaluate expenditure. Uh, so the, the broad category of the development assistance is in institutional building, the Canada has what is called a woman first uh, foreign policy. So wherever they can promote a feminist agenda, they will do so. They have taken serious initiatives in that regard. Uh, and Canada is very strong in promoting women's rights. Uh, and they partner with us because we have the same approach. They partner with us on a range of initiatives. One such initiative is called the LC Initiative, where they are looking at the promotion and empowerment and the advancement of women in peacekeeping operations. So wherever there's peacekeeping operations to ensure that we promote women in these peacekeeping operations and the LC initiative people from Canada will be visiting South Africa and I think they will be there in the end of this month to have such discussions with our counterparts from our military, from the police, from I think including from NPA, but where they are promoting the advancement of women in such areas, which is fantastic, which is, which is incredibly fantastic. Mm. I think, yes, we, we could learn a lot from that. I'm very interested in how would we develop a feminist foreign policy, meaning how do we, in our foreign policy, what lessons can we learn from Canada in how they advance women through its foreign policy? And that is something I think in Africa, we, we certainly can in Africa, uh, put women empowerment at the center of our foreign policy objectives. So too we can in the UN, so too we can in the multilaterals. But this is something I hope our own department, when we are looking at our transformation, will be able to, to see what lessons we can learn from Canada and like-minded countries. Oh, I use that term, like-minded countries. Uh, uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I thought I will never use that term in my life. But we, countries that would have this approach like we have uh, to see how we can bring that central to our foreign policy. I understand that South Africa and Canada also work very closely in the multilateral fora in organizations such as the United Nations, the G20, World Trade, Trade Organization, etc. Please talk us through some of the work or where we collaborate together in the multilateral fora. Well, generally in the multilateral forum, we would, uh, we've always felt as a family close to Canada on many of the multilateral issues. Uh, and especially about the centrality of the United Nations 
uh, and the work of the United Nations as the preeminent body to deal with conflict to issues that the world is facing. But I think what has happened perhaps in the past 10 years is that we believe, and we may be wrong in this belief, that Canada has drifted much closer to the, the hegemony uh, or the, to the influence or the sphere of influence of the United States. Now, it is understandable why they would do so, because as we said earlier, that 80% of its economy is dependent on, on uh, the United States of America. And then with the coming of Trump into politics and the rise of populist politics, Trump made it quite clear that he, in a sense, he gave notice to Canada that he wants to renegotiate all arrangements with Canada. And that did create a fair amount of anxiety and a fair amount of anxiousness in amongst Canadian society, in particular the government and elites. And I think that has brought in a level of cautiousness uh, to Canadian multilateralism. So I think they would always first now want to see what is the American position, what is the American posture on any particular matter. And then if they can have a degree of separation, they will. And if they cannot have a degree of separation, they will see how best to deal with this matter. And then let me give you an example. On the issue of, uh, on the, issue of uh, the Ukraine war, now it is true that we would have expected Canada to join us upfront in regard to uh, being part of those who are stitching together a peaceful uh, settlement of that conflict. But the US had a particular approach to the Ukraine war and therefore Canada felt it had to align itself with that approach. But there are also internal dynamics to, to Canada's approach in the Ukraine war. Canada hosts a large, I think, outside of Russia. The second, it, is, it hosts the largest Ukrainian expats in Canada, largest. Right? So the Ukrainian footprint in Canada is enormous and that footprint does have an influence in the way Canada views the Ukrainian-Russian uh, Ukrainian war. And it tries to navigate its position uh, while maintaining some kind of domestic cohesion, but at the same time uh, having to take a particular approach to, to Ukraine. So you've got to, to see Canada as a country that is very close to the sphere of American influence, US influence, having its own domestic uh, imperatives and tries very much to balance that. And it is in that balancing, they may sometimes appear to be not aligned with our multilateral approaches because we are in a sense, uh, we do not have that experience of living so close to a hegemon like the United States. And therefore we have a certain degree of freedom, but you'll notice that even our degree of freedom is challenged by the US, especially on threats of whether they would uh, renew AGOA, whether they're going to renew the benefits of South Africa that it derives from AGOA. And that is because the US sees us too close to maybe BRICS countries. So there are challenges in the way we manage the multilateral approach. And I think the best way to understand it is that often Canada may not be as close to us on multilateral issues as they would like to be, 
but there are limits to how close they can be close to us, given the geographical political realities that they face. And I think we understand that because then the opposite can also be a very useful way because often we can use Canada's closeness to the United States to sound off certain approaches that we may want to make to the US, but we can sound it with Canada to see how best to package that approach to see whether it's going to work. So then this closeness to Canada we can be seen as a value add to our multilateral approaches. So that's, I think, the way we, we've got to see how we, we keep our multilateral relationship with Canada alive, but based in the realities that we face and based in the realities that Canada faces. So it is much more nuanced, it's much more intense, it's much more managed, managed in which you cannot make an assumption. Of course, there are some areas in which we, we, we fundamentally disagree with, with Canada uh, on the area of, uh, say, the, its approaches to, to China. They, they are seeking to decouple itself from, from China. We don't think that is a good approach. Uh, I mean, the, at the end of the day, the reason why China has developed the way it has developed well, it was a success of multilateralism. The, the World Trade Organization, China becoming a member of the World Trade Organization, China becoming the factory of the world, and then Asia becoming the, the region that became the factory of the world. Well, none of us can reverse that process for better or for worse. We have to engage with that process and decoupling is not necessarily the best way forward on that. Uh, and this is where we would want to engage the, 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 the Canadians. Yes, there is, in a sense, a, a assertion of China now as a, a capable, uh, responsible uh, country in global affairs. Uh, and we, should, we welcome that, and we should encourage that, and we should find ways to work with China uh, to achieve the outcome, especially in regard to climate change. I mean, it's clear that we can, without working closely with China on, on climate change issues, the global society will not be able to address the effects uh, of the mitigation of climate change because that is happening. Uh, we know climate change is no longer something that is going to happen. It is happening. And again, we need more uh, international cooperation rather than less. So I hope I gave you an answer that you, you could see that, mm -hmm. yes, while we are, have an affinity towards Canada and multilateral issues, we have to manage it with, with nuance because of the closeness to the US and because of some issues that we may not agree with them on. In 2001, Canada bestowed uh, the late state president Nelson Mandela with an honorary citizenship in recognition of his leadership in the fight against apartheid and his efforts to build a new united South Africa. What did this honorary um, citizenship mean to us? What kind of significance does it have on South African relationship with uh, Canada? But I must say that the, the, the name Nelson Mandela itself produces an enormous, enormous positive attitude towards South Africa by Canadians. Uh, and so Mandela's legacy looms large in Canada. There are, there's roads named after him. There's a statue that's named after him. And we always, uh, whenever we meet with any Canadian, uh, the name of Nelson Mandela is, is the second line or perhaps even the first line in the conversation. 
so yes it has helped us the but what has helped us even more is mandela's leadership and guidance to us in regard to our own negotiation process guidance to us in regard to having iconic leadership uh, and the need for iconic leadership in times of crises and i think that gives us a tremendous positive uh, approach to to canadians and it allows us to 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 reflect on the legacy of of president mandela and his teachings or his guidance especially in times of conflict like we have with the ukraine uh, issue now and like there've been in many other other conflicts the world over the our particular approach to conflict resolution is enormously valued in the world and it's enormously valued in canada so when when i speak as a representative of south africa on the need to resolve the matter of ukraine and russia peacefully no one can can question our authority on it because we resolved our problems under the leadership of mandela peacefully and i think that is an enormous plus in our diplomatic efforts and as a result we have uh, we have what i think sometimes an advantage in diplomatic engagement which we have to use to our maximum to to keep the image of south africa going forward mhm and let's talk more on issues of authorism um how are the numbers looking are we reciprocating each other in terms of uh, tourism flow into south africa and out of south africa into canada yes on tourism let's let's do a little bit of geography on this mm. uh, one one of the biggest challenges to tourism or bringing tourists to south africa from canada is that canada is incredibly far away right it mm. is so far away uh and you would need to travel from ottawa or or any so the the main international airports is montreal and toronto so to travel to south africa you would either have to go to the us to new york and to take the long flight to south africa or you would have to step uh, do a stop over in europe and board a flight from europe to south africa so many this so we have what is called the geographical divide and we have the second divide which is the time difference right so as we are speaking right now it is 10:00 here in canada but in your case in south africa i think it is almost closer to 6:00 in the evening right so there's a 6 hour difference and that also produces jet lag mm-hmm. and it takes you to recover 1 hour uh, a day to recover from jet lag so these are all the objective limits to seeing tourism uh, that stands in the way of tourism but i must say the south african tourism outfit that is based in in new york work very close with us uh, they come here they keep promoting tourism to uh, south africa and it's destination tourism either you can visit particular destinations which and which is a big plus for south africa for example our uh, safari tourism is a huge thing uh the other day i was driving i think a a 6 hour drive no we drove to the us and drove back and that is 8 hours of driving and i was mentioning to my wife you know what what is quite interesting is that there's enormous amount of forest in between canada and in canada and in the us but they don't have the wildlife that we have right? mm. i mean the and i think there is something very unique about the wildlife and the preservation of our wildlife that is a huge attraction 
So too is Cape Town. Now that Cape Town has been voted as the best uh, tourist destination in the world by the Telegraph readers of the UK, I think we're going to see more and more people going to, to Cape Town. I had lots of requests here from people who are making destination uh, tourism. And by destination tourism, it is about combining business together with pleasure in a package way. And I think SA Tourism have really mastered that. Uh, so we have lots of interaction with them. In fact, last week, uh, someone came from the US from South African Tourism to tell us about their plans for the year and we're engaging and what assistance they're going to be giving us. So the figures are improving. The, uh, I think our figures have now gone back to the pre-COVID period mm. uh, uh, would increase focus. We would be able to increase the number of uh, South Africans, I mean, uh, Canadians or North Americans going to, to South Africa. Uh, South African SA Tourism monitors that. The indication for them, from them, is that we are at the pre-COVID level, which speaks very good. But more, I think there are some internal challenges that really, uh, stands as an obstacle to having more tourists from North America. And that is our ESCOM issues, our power supply issues. Mm. I know there are many efforts to resolve that and, and South Africa is developing a resilience in regard to managing that. Uh, so I think, yes, uh, we need to tackle those problems. We need to tackle the perception of crime issues. Uh, and deal with crime issues. What is worrying is sometimes you would read uh, newspaper articles where we are projected as a country in the grips of, of a massive crime wave. Mm -hmm. And those scare off people coming. Uh, they really do scare off people coming. It makes our job much harder in, in the way we have to constantly explain and contextualize the crime issues. But I think we will serve ourselves so much better if we, we can address our dysfunctionalities that lead to the, the increase in the prevalence of crime and other such issues, infrastructure, decay issues, etc. But uh, I am hoping that our government and particular departments and particular agencies are paying serious attention to this because it is carried negatively in North American press. Mm, that's a sad reality. Let's look at um, cultural diplomacy. Looking at uh, the uh, culture of Canadians and the culture of South Africans, do we have any commonalities? Indeed, indeed. So let me, this allows me to explain what is happening in Canada and which is something that we could, could also think about. Canada is the second largest country in the world. It is vast and it has a population, I think, of about 30 million people. Mm. Uh, so it is a small population. Uh, compared to to the United States, or compared to even even compared to ourselves, right? Given landmass, uh, uh, the landmass, uh, yeah. So Canada's population is now about 38, 38 39 million, uh, and Canada has determined that that, and it is correct, that thirty nine million people is characterized by an aging or aged population. So when they do the economic planning, they have come to the view that there is no way with current aging trends, people are living longer, people are living more healthier, and people are living beyond the age of 60, which is, which is one of the 
successes of human development, but the success produces its own uh, fault line because there are more older people than there are younger people and the older people will have to be supported by the younger people. And this is major challenges in respect of uh, demographic and it is called a demographic deficit because the younger working population has to take care of an older population who no longer working. So to deal with this issue, Canada has embarked on what is called the second great migration. Uh, it is bringing in on average 450,000 immigrants to Canada over the next few years. And the plan is to possibly reach the ideal figure of 100 million Canadians in the next 50 to 100 years. So you can imagine the consequences of bringing in such large amount of immigrants into to, to, to Canada. Now, there are significant challenges to that. And the challenges are the, the with large populations, immigrants would, and, and they are considered to be economic immigrants coming to seek economic advantage. Uh, and of course, those immigrants firstly would have to be integrated, they would have to be housed, they would have to be given the equality uh, of access to opportunities, etc. And that is starting to change the nature of Canada. It is also predicted that in the next 50, perhaps next uh, 50 to 60 years, that Canada will no longer be considered to be a white looking population. Mm. It will be looking more and more brown uh, because the immigrants that are coming in, despite what has happened in Ukraine and lots of Ukraine refugees, mainly they are skilled uh, immigrants coming from, from, from Asia. The Indian footprint in Canada is increasing uh, enormously, and they are getting integrated into Canadian life. Mm. Now, when, so I've raised the issue of immigration and uh, this vast experimentation in immigration that, that Canada is using, because it is changing the notion of the culture of Canada. What is it to be Canadian today? And what does a true Canadian uh, look like when there is going to be such enormous demographic shifts? But there's another phenomenon that is happening to Canada, and that is the growing population of the indigenous people. So the indigenous people, the first nations, the, the Meti, the Inuit, the people who were in Canada before white colonial power came here, their population is increasing. And you would know that the, the, the and, and I mean, for just for the want of a better word, that the, the colonial conquest of the lands of America came at the expense of the indigenous people. So the indigenous people were put in, once the genocides, once the killings happened and the lands were taken, those who were remaining were put in reserves. So the word reservation that we have in South Africa came by the British experience in Canada. Reservations, now, Thelma, you may be too young to know this word reservation. Mm, of course. <laughs> but for grandparents and will know it, what we mean by the reservations. Now, the reservations evolved into what we call ah, location. You know, so they were called locations. And then locations evolved to townships. Mm. All right. But the thread of that whole thing started from reservations. Wow. And that concept of reservations 
was brought to South Africa by the British from their, their experience of what they were doing to the indigenous people in Canada. Now, there is awakening of the indigenous people in, in Canada, in my view, it is taking place unevenly across the different communities of indigenous people, but there is a, a move to start reclaiming land. There is a, a significant move by indigenous people to no longer be invisible in Canada. They very much want to be visible. And I think that is correct. And I think Canada still has to grapple with the true reconciliation between its indigenous people and its settled people. And then from the settled people, which is also expanding because of immigration. So you can see Canada is this massive melting pot of contradictions that are, that are keep evolving, and uh, keep influencing each other in that regard. So, so the culture of Canada is a evolving concept. And in many ways, we, in many ways, there are some similarities to South Africa because in the one level, the indigenous people of South Africa is now in power, uh, are the majority, and the indigenous people needs have to be addressed. Even though in South Africa, we could have a debate about who are the true indigenous people, but for a want of a better word, we, we, when we talk about the indigenous people, the people who claim the lands and claims the geography to be theirs and claims the political aspirations to be theirs. So it is for this reason I want to say that I think we must all go back and reread the speech that was given on the adoption of our constitution by former President Thabo Mbeki, I am an African. Mm. Because in the philosophical and in the intellectual construct of that speech, I am an African, I think many parts of the world will be able to find a way to address their own particular challenges. Can you imagine a speech like, I am a Canadian, mm. and, my, and in my blood flows the people of the Inuit and the people of the Métis and the people, you know, I mean, can you imagine the power of that oration mm. in, in producing uh, things? So the Canadian anthem, is also been, and there's a very innovative thing happening to the Canadian anthem. And the Canadian anthem has the, the, the use of the word native land, right? Oh, Canada and native land. Now, some people are starting to change that to say, oh, Canada on native land. So they're moving away from the end to the on, yeah, mm. because it is. Canada is on native lands mm -hmm. uh, and and as long as they keep that alive it could be a very interesting debate and this is where South Africa can help Canada or we can give our experience to Canada mm. how do we resolve the contradiction between indigenous people and settled people uh, but South Africa, I mean, but Canada is also unique in one, is, is similar to South Africa in one other way. It is a, a thought I am developing and, and I'm testing it, but let me just share it with you and your listeners. So there is a fault line in Canada, which is also very prevalent when you live in, in Canada. It is between the Francophone people and the Anglophone. So when you trace the history of Canada, you will see that the Anglophone component came from the British and the Francophone component came from the French. Mm. So the French settled by and large in, in uh, Quebec. And 
the Quebec developed a particular localization of the French, of the language, of its people, of its culture. Now, not, not dissimilar to how Afrikaners developed in South Africa. Mm. Not dissimilar. So when I make the comparisons about the nature, the culture, the posture of people living in Quebec, it always kindles in my mind the Africana of South Africa. Mm. And there are so much similarities of a, a large uh, group of people who come from another country, settle in another country, but become part of the indigenous fabric of the new country. So this fault line between Francophone and Anglophone Canada is there, is there. And, and, I, and in a sense, you can imagine, you can imagine that many of the French-speaking Canadians believe that they are surrounded by an Anglophone world and that their language and culture is under threat and you can, and you can see it. And because of democracy, they, they very strongly articulate the view to preserve their language, to preserve their culture. And that, that is, will always be a, a fault line in Canadian society, uh, and it'll always be there. And I think it has to constantly be managed to make sure that the, the antagonisms, whatever antagonism develop, the, or the contradictions do not become antagonistic, where mm. the, the province of Quebec will consider succession or secession or whatever. I don't think that will happen, but there's always this tension between is the federal government of Canada doing enough to preserve the, the Francophone uh, footprint in Canada? So every government official has to speak both French and, and English, has to be proficient in English and in French, and in any official event has to make uh, a pronouncement, some in French, some in English. So in many ways, we have dealt with that by recognizing the, our languages the way we did, and giving an equal place for all of our languages. Uh, but I can see this challenge con continuing and shaping Canada as it goes forward. So the three fault lines which are shaping Canada is the indigenous people fault line, the immigration fault line, and the Francophone, uh, Francophone, Anglophone fault line. And to that, you can add close to the US, how does it manage that relationship? And the last one would be the very nature of Canadian society. It's a trading people, it needs to increase, it needs to re-industrialize, it needs to, to become more innovative in, in regard to a whole range of economies, because that is the consequence of living for so long in a highly developed country. So that is Canada for you, and that is Canada for the way I experience it. Hi, Commissioner. I think we have run out of time. It has been great chatting to you this morning. Thank you so much for having made time to speak to us. I hope we will talk again very soon. I hope so too, Thelma. And thank you for having me.